0: Okay, so here I am with Brett Gosper, CEO of World Rugby. I know him, of course, as an advertising man. I want to talk to you about that, how you got from there to, to here. But uh, thanks for coming into the IPA. Um, this is an incredibly busy, probably the busiest time for you. You can imagine with the World Cup going on. Uh, just give us a little sort of inkling of what you're, what you're sort of having to deal with.
1: Well, it's a, it's a frantic time because. You, you deal from big-picture stuff to, to small, minutiae as well, but you're pulled in many directions. Um, you've got all of your own council members, which is your biggest board that you answer to. You've got your executive board. You've got a Rugby World Cup board. Like in sport, there are committees all over the place that you're dealing with. Um, you've got many uh, sponsors that you're doing. so you're going to make appearances at all your top worldwide partners, of which there's six top worldwide partners, and then another four or five at different levels and so on that you appear with. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to meet referees. Media is a massive part of what you do. Every day I've got four or five media calls with different platforms, you know, around the world, whether it be you know, local media or, or rugby media around the world or just general media. More than ever before at this World Tournament, there's been a lot of financial media as well because of the size and scale of a Rugby World Cup. You get pulled into legal issues, uh, disciplinary issues with players, um, just issues of how the general tournament's going. From has the royal box got ref mic on their seats? Um, you know, right through to you know, is the president's speech too long for the opening ceremony? Um, are the TMOs taking too long to get through the system and so on? So it's, it is. There's nothing that you're not consulted on in some way, and that's just the way the system works. But it's
0: but it's been an amazing start, hasn't it? We I mean, oh, like were just talking before.
1: We could not have written a a better start. I mean, firstly, I think the opening game, the opening ceremony was was uh, you know well watched and well. I think we had huge television audience figures for that, um, and it went down well. Host, I've got to be very careful what I say because I get in trouble every time I talk about whether the host does well or not. But you know, good for the host. Has to be good. Good for the the host to win. Yeah, I mean, and it's the thing is, it's not going to change the commercial value of the tournament. It's done. You know, we've broken every record commercially attendance demand whatever you want to talk about Um, it's the atmosphere of the tournament and 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 the memory of it and 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 and, you know this is the host and you want people in this country to get something out of it that means their team doing quite well so they kicked off well beat a very very strong i think fiji inside then we had over the weekend a couple of upsets which world rugby loves because we invest a lot of money in the second tier not top 10 but second tier 10 we invest across the lot but we you know, get specialist coaches with all our competition's performance people working on those next 10 to make them very competitive. So um, you know, we had a good, good win from Georgia over Tonga, uh, although two Tier 2 teams, you would have expected Tonga to win that. And, of course, the Japanese game has been reverberating around the world where they beat the Springboks. First ever win by Japan in a World how, Cup. How
0: popular is it in Japan, the sport? I mean, are they probably very popular now. Well, not, the, not, not the as theater... popular as
1: it was a while back. And it's one of the reasons that the next World Cup in 2019 is actually going to Japan. First time we do it in a tier two country. First time we do it in Asia. Hugely bold move for rugby to do that. And we're working our way through some of the issues on that at the moment because we lost the National Olympic Stadium as a, as a, as a centrepiece of, of our tournament, which was going to happen here before the Olympics. But it is traditionally a very po- a very popular sport. It, it, it's a little bit exclusive popular in Japan in that every corporate owns its top corporate owns a team in the, in the professional league. And then in, in political terms, every politician used to play rugby. But somehow it's kind of, I mean, I exaggerate to make a point, but it's become a bit of a Freemasonry. It hasn't trickled into the general right. population as much as we'd like to. But in the past, it's, it's had huge crowds for some of the big games and so on. I mean, the, the, the National League there gets three or 4,000 along to each of their games. Um, if they have a big tip, the All Blacks turn up, they'll fill a stadium. If anyone else turns up, they might get 25,000. So to try and sell what they'll have to sell, which is about 1.8 million tickets in 2019, they're going to have to go some, and it has to be seen by the Japanese as a big event. So this weekend has helped the fact really that you, the, yeah. the, the, the home team actually can knock someone off like South Africa. Um, and uh, you know, uh, we actually had to close our merchandise store on heard, Oxford yeah. Street Everyone's yesterday. was wearing a Japan rugby shirt. <laughs> they were taking the shelves out of the place. I mean, it was you know, the Japanese were just piling in, and it was incredible. Yeah.
0: And someone redesigned their flag with the, the sun <laughs> as a rugby board. That's so right, that yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about you, Brett, because um, I know you come from a sporty family, sure. uh, and uh, that you were a you were a, not probably everybody knows this you were a professional rugby player. You as into... professional
1: as it wasn't allowed at the time. Well,
0: yeah. of course it was a little <laughs> bit vague then. Uh, and then you got into advertising. Just, just talk to us a little bit about how, how you ended up in advertising, starting out as a, as a
1: sporty kid. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I up, do you know I ended up in advertising because I was doing a law degree and an economics degree, and I was probably going to be a lawyer. And my brother was a lawyer. Be- sorry, my brother was a lawyer before me, and um, I, I, I kind of read in a laundrette while I was doing my laundry at university, David Ogilvy's book, and that, I was sold. That book right. just, you know, con- confessions, I'm dating myself a bit, but confessions and advertising.
0: still a great book. Man,
1: still a great book, and uh, so from that second, almost, that I put the book down, which I couldn't put down when I was reading it, I wanted to, to get into it. So I wrote a million letters, managed to get a training period with Ogilvie Mather, um, who then allowed me to move from Melbourne to Brisbane to play rugby, and then I got a letter, actually in those days it was a telex, from France saying in your off season would you come and play for the racing club in Paris we'll pay all expenses, flights uh, re- you know uh, apartments, restaurants cash, all the rest of it come and stay for six months and Ogilvy said why don't you go and do that um, go and have six months off and come back when you're finished I did the six months and decided I quite liked it Yeah, how, how old were
0: you? you? like? I was 21 In Paris and all expenses in Paris, All yeah.
1: expenses paid yeah, uh, all, you know we were pretty well profiled as a team in Paris. We were the only first division team in Paris. Um, so, yeah, it was fantastic uh, fantastic to do. So I took the six months off, but the day before I left, I rang the agency and said, look, I'm a trainee with Ogilvy in Australia. I'd love to stay on here. The company will pay my salary for the next six months if you take me on for free. So Ogilvy took me on in Paris for free, and at the end of that six months, they, um, they took me on for good. And I had the office actually next door to David Ogilvy, which is his... Part-time office. That's where he based himself. He was still very much alive because he was still alive yeah, yeah. And, and writing Ogilvy on advertising, which was the change of book to. Uh, and I helped him translate some of that. And used to go out to lunch with him, and it was it was a good fun period. And uh, yeah. he was a big rugby fan. And I, I actually had him, what they say, dedicase, uh, you know, sign a book for me, yeah. one, his book, and said, look, do you mind signing this and yeah. writing something for me? And uh, anyway, I left it on his desk, and he. Left it on my desk afterwards and I opened it up and it said, Who said rugged players can't succeed in advertising? <laughs> anyway, I was, of course, chuffed, went around the agency showing everyone with my chest puffed out, said, Look, he obviously thinks I've got full of potentials. On. Anyway, I went past his office and I said, David, look, really, not, what a great thing you wrote in my book. I'm so pleased. He said, Yeah, yeah. You didn't know I played rugby, did you? <laughs> so,
0: yeah.
1: I don't share that story with people I've shared the line with.
0: I'm sure you still got the book.
1: Still got the book, yeah, you just, absolutely.
0: You just say, oh yeah, oh, you wrote course, about Of course, yeah, me.
1: absolutely.
0: So then you went, um, I mean, you've worked in London, you worked in New York.
1: That's right, so I worked in Paris, and I was you know, one of the great, last of the Mohicans in a rugby sense, because rugby went fully professional in 95, I played till 90, so... I did eight, nine seasons with the racing in Paris, played a few selection games against the All Blacks and, and other British Barbarians and so on. Sorry, I'm banging on the table. Um, uh, played a few selection games and then um, actually very briefly set up TBWA in Frankfurt after we won the BMW account, which actually finished with tears, but it was an interesting year in, in, in Frankfurt and then was asked by Havas to come and, and, and put some sense into a small group of companies that were owned by Havas that we rebranded and relaunched as Euro RSCG it Gosper, despite the name, we did reasonably well.
0: Yeah, well, th- <laughs> those of us who are over 40 will remember—I <laughs> include myself in really. you, you went on an incredible run. Didn't you? We in had the a 90s. good. I we mean, we, we had were a, right. We were the new business kings.
1: We did very well in new business, and and it was a great period. And um, we couldn't understand why this was so easy. There was no formula, or or I don't know what it was, but we did do very well. It was a great period of time, and. After about nine or 10 years of that, it, 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 it just seemed to be time to go and do something else. And I was approached by McCann Erickson actually for a job in in the UK and Euro at the, at the time, which is now Habas wanted to move me to New York to do something. And I told them that and they said, well, would you like to run a New York office? And uh, I thought, you know, it was basically probably the biggest office in New York, uh, certainly the biggest agency in the States at that time and the biggest in the world. So it seemed like a big mm-hmm. challenge. Uh, it was a much bigger place than i had ever imagined and uh, i remember being there on about i said i'll do a breakfast with each department over time so i can talk to everyone in the agency i've been there for about 5 months and still hadn't done everyone and I'd how, forgot, how many i people? forgot the t- well, i forgot the tv department right. and and I said, Qu- "Quick, get them up to my office." And she looked at me. She said, "But there's sixty of them in the TV department. What do you mean, get them up to your oh, office?" Really. I, mean, I said, uh,
0: "How many people were employed?" Well, that? we had media
1: in the yeah, yeah, p- so the P and L of the to... New York office at the time. So we were about fifteen hundred people wow. at that time in an ad agency. Yeah. So it was, you know, floors and floors of the New York office. And at that time, you know, all of the big global accounts were managed out of there. A lot of them been pushed into different entities. There's, there's a, There's all of these tailor-made entities for clients now across holding companies, and so very much McCann was running most of that stuff. I actually did that oddly for a a year and left because jean Murray Drew, uh, who used to be my boss at at BGDP in the days I worked in Paris, which is TBWA now, um, asked me to come over and run Shite Day in New York. And at the time, after a year at McCann, I felt there were too many people in my office from above the guy who ran North America, the guy who ran the world, and I was just feeling it wasn't corporate me. And if you'd come out of a place that you ran as your own with a couple of partners uh, where you just said, we're going to do this, and you did it, Mm. um, I wasn't used to the hoops of a a, a corporate entity like McCann, which is a little bit, you know, they mirror themselves a little bit on their clients. So somewhere between GM, (laughs) Coca-Cola, and, you know, the corporate culture was incredibly rigid in, in, in many ways, I think, at that time. I think it changed a lot since and then. But anyway, I, I went to Shire Ch- 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 Day for a year and cut a long story short, actually, they brought me back to run the USA after that at McCann on the assurances that a lot of changes would be made. I thought Jean-Marie was going to go and work for... Who was the agency that was recruiting him at the time? Oh, yeah. It was Havas, yeah. It was, it was Havas. Havas yeah.
0: Yes, we all thought that. That's
1: right. Yeah. So we all thought he was going to go and, and I rang him and said, I'll stay if you're staying. And he, and he, and he bumbled around with his answer so much. I thought, oh, he's, he's going, so I'm not going to stay. And I went back to McCann, and of course, did another three years at McCann, being president of the US there, and then they sent me back to be head of EMEA for McCann, which I did for about four years. Um, interesting job, that one. Uh, more frustrating in many ways because it's you've got so much responsibility in geography, but you're not really the boss uh, in many ways because that happens in in New York. Um, and you felt on. It's funny you felt like you're running a subsidiary of a US-based thing. It was, it was quite interesting dynamic. Um, at the end of that period, there was a management change in New York, where Nick Bryan entered the the, the scene. There were, there were probably a few of us being mooted for that role. But I was a Doona guy. Um, he put me here um, in, in London at the time. And so it was time then to probably move on. And at that point, we, we agreed to departure, and so I did.
0: And then you ended up running... That's right. Well, well I... it wasn't called World Rugby when no, you were there, was it? No, because,
1: you know, you, you, re-branded you it. tend to turn up at a place and play to your strengths. And yeah. of course, branding and marketing is a little bit more my strength in putting on uh, World Cups. I mean, it wasn't because of that, but it, it, it to me, required um, a, a rebrand. So, I, anyway, I was approached for that role. Um, as a previous player, it appealed to me. Um, I'd had a year off. I thought it's a good time to do something else if there's something else out there, otherwise I'll go back. I lo- you know, love advertising, happy to move back into that industry if, if, if something else that's really dramatically different doesn't turn up. I got the nod in that job, which was, you know, despite my experience, I, I got that job. There were probably some lot more qualified people for me. Which, and I did for sure bluff my way through, certainly the first three years. I've been there for three years today. <laughs> I bluff my way through the first year for sure and uh, found my way, but it did appear to me that they were an inward-facing brand that didn't know what they they stood for. Um, They were a very confidential brand, and we didn't even have a plaque on our door in Dublin where we stayed. We were ex-directory till 1987. Um, You know, just an incredibly secretive Mm. uh, place because it's a federation, very legalistic, Um, For 100 years of its existence, it existed since since, uh, 1886, uh, where it really was born to offset the power of the rugby football union in disputes and so on. And the other home nations gathered together to offset the the power of that, the weight of the rugby football union. Um, And uh, it was just like a legal firm for 100 years. Suddenly they had a World Cup in 1987, which suddenly meant they had to become a bit outward-facing. Um, the growth of the World Cup has been phenomenal. Suddenly also now we have a Sevens World Series, sponsored by HSBC. Where,
0: where, where does it rank, I heard someone say on the radio? in The Rugby the, World Cup? In terms of world sporting events. R-
1: Rugby World Cup is a global sporting event. We say it situates number three after the Olympics and after uh, after FIFA. So FIFA would be the biggest, yeah. but it depends on your criteria. Cricket World Cup probably beats us on television or, or does beat us on television. Because it's all because India. Of, because of India. Yeah, right. but they don't have our global footprint. Yeah. You know, we we broadcast to 770 million households, 204 countries, um, much broader, heavier and even footprint. And the states, it's great. And the, it's states, it's the well, it's the fastest growing team yeah. sport in the states now, with over a million participants, and as an Olympic sport, you know, massive. You know, we've we've a lot of our broadcast we've made sure is we've opened up, even if we've not received money that we get from. You know, subscriber or pay channels and, and, and so on. We've opened up free to air in a lot of countries in Asia, China, Brazil, and so on. Uh, Germany's got twenty four broadcasts on Direct. We've paid they've paid really? three times more than they paid at the last uh, Rugby World Cup. So certainly from a ticketing, Germans era, play rugby. Germans play rugby. In fact, they were, were ranked twenty four at some time in this year, and the, we made management made a bit of a push to move the World Cup. 2014s rather than the current 20 because so it, would, them, yeah. it would include Germany. They get quite excited when you say the, world's world, the words World Cup in Germany yeah, for, yeah, probably, yeah. for obvious reasons, them, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and they are, you know, a very strong side. They're actually moving very strongly in the sevens area too, and um, uh, expect to see them at the Olympics in not too too long as well. Can we,
0: can we talk a bit about uh, advertising and where it meets rugby? Because, I mean, you know, you only have to have your TV on now to see all the, the many great ads... Yeah, I think, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. to support it and to sponsor it, to capitalise upon it. Well, the advertising world's changed a lot since you and I started out. Sure. Um, and what what observations have you, you made about the way different brands have, have capitalised on their association?
1: Well, I, I'd probably be leading with the association. It's the legal association. And the, well, not just the legal, but the more authentic is our, are our partners. Um, and our partners actually... Hold very dear the right to be sponsored. They're the same sponsors that were in 2011 at the New Zealand World Cup. Um, it really does give them the right to play across the broad spectrum of any platform with, in any way that associates our event with their brand. And they all use it in different ways, you know, and they all have different objectives, you know, from an Emirates, which really is in it for awareness and space of mind on the referees, boards, that's what's, what's, what's key to them. Whereas pe- you know, people like Land Rover, Coca-Cola are all about you know the digital activation side of it and gathering a movement you know linking the movement of their brand with the movement of the sport itself there are there are some like Land Rover that like the associative values of the sport the, the what we call yeah. well the whole gambit i mean you know the, our positioning as a sport is the sport that builds character and so we have five values, but after a while, I couldn't remember all five. And the RFU have got a different set of five. And so I said we needed to distil this, and that was part of our brand thing. And so it's all about character. I mean, that's the territory's character, and of course, we say we've been building character since 1886, which is our corporate line. And, and you know, Land Rover is very much in that space. Mastercard uh, are, are more in the space of how it links into transaction as a demonst- almost a product demonstration. You know, um, contactless, and, 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 of course, the community and the values associated with too. So there's associative, there's brand awareness, just simply getting your name out there, and there's working your compu- your community with a narrative acro- across all of the platforms. And, you know, it, it, they're also interested in our own uh, platforms because we have an incredibly high following, and I should have my figures here, but on, you know, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, um, our, our video views online, um all, you know, absolutely every social media platform you can talk about, we are incredibly well, well have penetrated. Have
0: advertisers who aren't official sponsors trying to well, rub along with you, and, and well,
1: well, you? Well, you get people... Because you've got sponsors that are sponsors of teams. Right. And that's where it becomes... They've got to be careful. They have to retain their, you know, good luck England. But if they say good luck England for the Rugby World Cup, suddenly they're impinging on yeah, rights. Yeah, yeah. So we have a team of rights police that are going around all the time, whether it be in hospitality, and we've got some rogue hospitality providers, which we also, I won't go into the economic model, but hospitality television broadcast around the world and sponsorship is what? World Rugby, which is, which is actually Rugby World Cup, a subsidiary, Rugby World Cup limited subsidiary of, of, of World Rugby, which manages all of that, and the host union manages uh, the ticketing and all of the logistics on the ground, stadiums, transport, security, and so on. Um, so we're very cautious about the big sponsors of the big teams coming in and making it look like they, and they, you know, it's, it, the association is, is legitimate for them with the teams. They just can't overstep the mark in that area. But you know, some of the great pieces that I've seen, yeah, we have seen good stuff from Guinness. They're not, a, they're not a sponsor. Heineken is. Mm. Heineken's done some very good work as well. Samsung have done great work, but they're not a sponsor. Um, So you know, you you. But it's all great noise for the sport, and that's what we love. They're all saying good things about sport.
0: uh, Was it was it your not your personal decision, but was it your organisation that pushed for the stadia to be used right across
1: um, England? Well, that was the host. The the I mean, we approve everything, and we would like it to be. You know, again, to differentiate from the Olympics, it tends to be a mono city Mm. affair. How you do differentiate against a big event like this? Really taking it across the country. And, you know we've got 42 team bases across the country and those different i was in burton-on-trent last yeah, night brilliant. at the last irish welcome uh, the last team that was welcomed officially and it's the town hall and it's you know it's brass bands and cho- choirs that were selected in in competitions and the teams come in and they put their hats on they get their medals in the past we've given participation medals as they left and of course they leave when they've lost so mm. it was never a, you know particularly wonderful ceremony but whereas as they come in we're doing it this time so Across the country, every, you know, the people of Burton are into it because they've, they're hosting. You know, you've got all the football grounds across the country, which is also another way to penetrate markets that we're not in, which is the idea of a, of a Rugby World Cup. So we're at the Man City Stadium, the Leeds Stadium, Aston Villa, um, who am I forgetting? Brighton. Uh, Brighton, of yeah. course. I was there two days ago. Yeah. And, of course, where the Japanese won their historic win. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there are 13 st- stadia across 10 cities, the Olympic Stadium. Twitter. So it's going kind to, of, yeah. so
0: awesome. um, you probably won't give me a, um, a prediction.
1: You, well, I get asked by that at the end of every yeah, I interview obviously, and, I, and I'm, I, I, I obviously, so I'm aggressively answer. neutral, yeah. although I fail occasionally. Um, I refer people to our rankings and say, look, our rankings are usually pretty accurate. That's yeah. the best guide I can give you. Currently, um, the New Zealand ranked number one. There's a bit of shuffling in the rankings this weekend, where South Africa dropped are down. Are you in the rankings? We adjust each something? week. Yeah, we we adjust our rankings each oh, week. Right, okay. So, Japan have actually moved up higher than Scotland after they went against they Scotland. There, so, th- so Scotland are the underdogs now, officially against Japan right, for the weekend game. So it's quite
0: quite amusing. Apologies to any Scottish lessons. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: so so I'm going down for the Scottish game. Actually, it's, it's tomorrow. Yeah, right. um, in Gloucester.
0: So it's going to be... I suppose also it depends, doesn't it? You need a bit of luck in terms of who gets through to, to play in the final. Well,
1: it, it is. People say, what's the dream final? And, I, and as I've said before, um, it doesn't change the success of this tournament in any way who ends up in that final. And depending on who you're looking at, you know, we, we we'd, if Uruguay got to the final, it would be a huge success for World Rugby in the way we're making teams competitive. I think in this country, you get a sense people quite like, would like to see, obviously, their home team, England, in the final, they'd probably like to see them against the previous world champions. Mm. So I think most English people would say that's the dream final. Um, They've
0: got to deal with your team first, though,
1: Australia. Oh, you're referring to Australia? Yeah. Poor um, old Wales, all these in- Wales had a few injuries, yeah. but but uh, I wouldn't write them off. No, I wouldn't write no. anyone off In who's, well, I wouldn't write anyone off after the Japanese game at all, but Certainly, the top eight sides in 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 world rugby, any one of them are capable of winning a world cup. I'm sure.
0: Well, look, Brett, it's been great talking to you. I always ask um, uh, at the end of these things uh, for you to tell me who your hero is, um, living or dead. Who who would that be? Yeah, it's
1: pretty. I'd be pretty cheesy and banal on the on, on the who the hero is. Probably, I, you know, Nelson Mandela. There's something about him and the greatness of what he did, but the Ordinariness of the way he went about dealing with people, but ordinary in a good way. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, the sheer um, uh, touch that he had and the natural interest he had in people. And I hear a lot about him in the rugby context
0: because he had that affinity he, with the South African. Women, that's
1: right. right, and he was he, and he was a, he was a big deal, obviously, for rugby. In '95 really put rugby on the map with his involvement. Of course, they have been filmed since and so on. But everyone you talk to through the South African Rugby Union or Bernard Passer, our president, have spent a lot of time with him. I'm my father actually was part of the Olympic small working group of four people that, that visited South Africa to, to to work out with Mandela whether they should come back in and be recognised by the Olympics. Of course they were recognised by the Olympics before they were by the UN again and um, it was the Olympics that accepted them back in the community and his his personal touch and the way he was but at the same time keeping his eye on, on, mm. on, on, on the big things that mattered I you know I, I'm sure I'm one of many minions who who'd say Nelson Mandela. Well, yeah, yeah uh,
0: who would argue with that? Yeah. Uh, and the last question is, uh, you've got to recommend a book.
1: Yeah, I, I wish I could recommend a rugby book. Um, I, I I don't know why. Cricket and baseball books, to me, have a wealth of literature that maybe rugby, maybe we should be setting up some sort of literary prize to, to adjust it. There are some great rugby books, of course. But the 2 I'll give you two books. I can't separate them. There's a great book called Larwood, which won a few prizes about five years ago. Uh, and, and for an Australian to read a book about Larwood, it's almost like reading a book seen, the World War II seen from the Nazis' point, yeah. of, point of view. And it is the most this, compelling read. This reason. is the, the English. Yeah, yeah the, the English, bowler, like the bowler the, 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 who, the, yeah. who starred in Bodyline, who yeah. was the the, the the main soldier for Jardine, who was the English captain at the time, of the Bodyline series. And it's not written by a sports writer. It's written by an historian. And it is a brilliant book. Yeah, right. And it gives you fantastic color of the political implication of that Bodyline uh, no, well, series. I'll go, I'll go, like, but Larwood, who is a very ordinary footman soldier, it's fantastic. It's a must read. And the other book, which I read while I was in America, when I was, when I was living in America, and, and I loved baseball because I thought saw a lot of uh, parallels with crickets on. Um, the Big Bam. The Life and Times of Babe Ruth. Unbelievable uh, insights. Again, written by a historian. It'll be the most recent book, The Big Bam, on Babe Ruth, I think. Fantastic colour of the, on, on, on the most colourful sportsman, I think, in history.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Brett Gosper. What a job running the Rugby World Cup. Um, probably a little bit more difficult than running an advertising agency, but. This has been Paul Bainsfair and this has been the IPA podcast.